Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. All right, good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 4 through 11, Life in the Spirit, part 3 of 4. So next week, we'll come back to the same passage. I really dig how this is flowing. I hope that you do as well, because before, I would be tempted to take this whole passage in one or maybe two bites and, and, and treat them separately. And obviously, they have contacts, and we would refer, I would refer back to them, but I like how it's going that we take this passage and we look at the whole passage uh, for multiple weeks in a row. So, so this, like, this reality has opened up for me. It's a new way of me uh, of thinking through. Obviously, this is going to extend Romans, but I'm okay with that. And I hope that you're okay with that as well. You know, we sang these two songs. Uh, well, we're about to sing a song at the end, but this song, um, What He's Done. What has he done in your life? Let me just tell you, uh, I mean, the last 24 hours, the last 18 hours, the Lord has done so much in my life. He's done so much for me. He's done so much to show me how big he is and how good he is. And with my son's permission, I'll share that my son was born again last night. Amen. Amen. You know, I, I was concerned for my son. You know, I felt, like, I, I felt that there was a softness in my daughter's hearts. And praise the Lord, my oldest two are saved. They've, they've been born again. But, but my son had me worried. I was concerned for him. Up at night, praying for him. And last night, he confessed his sin. He confessed that Jesus is Lord. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you that there's nothing that uh, the Lord can do for me that he hasn't already done. He gave me life. He's given me, my son life. He's given my daughter's life. My wife has life. And I can't think of a better way of introducing a passage about the spirit of life than introducing it that way. Amen. Amen. And here's what I want for you. Life. I want life for you. I had to look at my son and I say, son, that's sin right there. That's death. I said, son, what, what does that sin produce in you? He said, death. I said, son, Jesus died for that sin. That sin, one, that one sin is enough to, to earn you God's righteous and eternal wrath. And I wasn't trying to scale the, uh, scare the hell out of him. But, but we need to know. Because if there is no hell, if there is no eternal judgment, then what is grace? What is mercy? So praise the Lord for what he's done. And I hope and pray that he has done something like that in your life. I hope that you can point to your life in the last 24 hours and say, look at what God's done in my life, and you've come here ready to worship uh, this morning, having your hearts prepared and your minds ready. Here, let's read Romans chapter eight, verses four through 11. Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son to die for us, to atone for our sin, to give us eternal life. Thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell within us, to regenerate us, to make us new, to bring us from death to life, and to guide us, and to convict us, and to teach us and comfort us. Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you for the word that the Spirit has inspired. And now, Lord, we ask that you would open it for us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Paul says flesh, he's not referring to a physical body. John used the term flesh to describe Jesus' physical body in John 1.14, and the word became flesh. But that's the exception. In the New Testament, where the word flesh is used, with exception, or by exception, it means physical body, but generally, it refers to the fallen human nature that is in active rebellion against God. What Paul writes here, when he explains in verse 4, I think the reason that's important now that we're on verse 10, we're going to be really focused drilling down on verse 10, but it is in connection to verse 4. I think this is why it's helpful for us to do the whole passage together. Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. The flesh is that, is that rebellious, sinful nature. And Paul wrote in such a way that it should elicit self-examination. Now, the tone of all of Romans and the tone of especially Romans 8 reveals to us that Paul presumes that most people hearing this are, in fact, in the spirit and not in the flesh. Nevertheless, he wrote a conditional clause. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That was meant to comfort, not to correct. For most people, hearing this text, it it should be a source of comfort. If, in fact, the, the Spirit of God is in you, you say, well, do I have the Spirit of God? Ah, praise the Lord. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That was the first thing I said to my son after I wept over him. Son, 
that sin that Jesus died for, that, that warrants God's eternal punishment, that sin and all your other sin is done, is paid for, is erased from your record. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the question is how do I know if that applies to me? How do I know if I'm the one for whom Jesus died? How do I know that there's no condemnation for me? And Paul answers the question, one condition, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you know that you are in Christ. Paul doesn't say that we are in the Spirit if we are virtuous people. Paul doesn't say that we are in the Spirit if we are moral people. Paul doesn't say that we are in the Spirit if we have kicked the habits that once held us. Paul doesn't say that we're in the Spirit if we're good citizens, hard workers, or anything else. Paul says that you are in the Spirit on one condition, if the Spirit of God is in you. I, I think we need to consider this because there's a lot of judging that goes on in the church. Don't you know that? And, and, and let me just set this in, in very clear words. You are a broken vessel of clay that has been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And your brother or sister for whom Jesus died, who has, who has confessed his sin, is on a journey, is a broken vessel of clay who has been indwelt by the very same Spirit of God, and you look at that person and judge them. You are in the Spirit based on one condition alone. If the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in you. Jesus talks about servants judging other servants. And he says, who are you as a servant to judge your master's servant? Be careful, church. Be careful who you allow your mouth to speak against. No one can be in the Spirit unless he is born again by the Spirit. That's the message of Jesus to that Pharisee Nicodemus, that good old boy, you know, that moralizer, that uber-religious, uber-committed, moralistic, religious man. You know what Jesus said to Nicodemus? He said, Nicodemus, there's nothing we can build on with you. There's nothing that, we, that I can take and, and use to build upon. No, Nicodemus, we got to start all over. He said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it. We cannot have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and we cannot see the kingdom of God unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. You know that term born again, that, that, that probably, that, that got t strung through the mud in the last few decades. Born again, believer. But I don't know any other way to refer to genuine conversion. 
Because I know that God could care less about your moralizing. The only thing that God is interested is in, are you born again by the spirit of God? Do you have new life in Christ Jesus? Your heart of stone, God prophesied through Jeremiah, must be replaced with a heart of flesh. We call it regeneration, being made new, born again. And that conditional clause, if in fact, ought to cause us to sincerely evaluate whether, in fact, we are in the Spirit and whether the Spirit is within us. Because verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I just get this picture here. I think about Jesus, full of the Spirit. And I think about these empty vessels judging him. And I think about Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. And if it happened to Jesus, it happens to us. Empty vessels who are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, judging vessels who are. God sees. God sees. This ought to be a, a moment of evaluation of your heart. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in me? But look, Paul doesn't linger there, and neither will we. Because Paul assumes that those who are hearing this, they're in the church, just as you are. And Paul assumes that most people hearing this were, in fact, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But suppose that a person finds that they are an empty vessel right now. The solution for you is to immediately repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ and be born again, just like my son was last night. To cry out, Lord, forgive me because I know my sin is an affront to you. I've sinned against a holy, living God. Forgive me. Fill me with your spirit and give me new life. But we don't dwell here because this isn't where Paul dwells. He goes on here to verse 10. And this is where we're going to dwell this morning. This incredibly encouraging promise to those in whom the spirit of God does dwell. Which I hope at this point is every one of you in this room or listening or watching online. But he goes on to, to describe in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Look at what he says here, but if Christ is in you, does it, does, it, does it strike you that in verse 10 that he says, if Christ is in you? I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit is in us. I, I thought that Paul said that, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. I, I thought that he says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, and now he says, but if Christ is in you. Is this an error, Paul? A Trinitarian error? Certainly not. Certainly not. No, what Paul is doing here is he is highlighting the impenetrable unity of the Trinity and the intimacy that they share as the Godhead. How anyone can read the New Testament and not see the Trinity is beyond me. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Christ himself, I just don't get it. I think about Jesus' baptism. 
Jesus in the flesh, in the water, the voice of, of the Father from heaven, and then the descending of, of the Holy Spirit like a dove. Trinity, one God, three persons, perfectly united, distinguishable, and yet so intimate that Paul doesn't feel any need to explain what he means. Here's what I meant. I know I just said spirit of God. I know I just said spirit of Christ. In a minute, I'm going to say the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. And now I'm saying Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't feel the need to explain that or expound upon that or clarify on that. Why? Because they are so intimately related and so unified. The Spirit has come from the Father and from the Son, and the presence of the Spirit is, in essence, the presence of Christ in the believer. Now, let's look at the effect of Christ in us, on us. Paul says that if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. What does he mean there? This is a really beautiful contradiction in my opinion. While you are still bound in your mortal body, he's gonna, he's gonna use that term in verse 11, your mortal body, always describing this broken, fallen, corrupt, physical thing. While you are still bound in your mortal body, there's life. I think that Paul had both senses in mind when, it came, when he was talking about your mortal body, your, your, your body that is dead because of sin. I think that he had both the, the, the physical effects of sin, which is the fact that your body is aging. Anyone feel that? Right? Your body is aging, it's broken, and, and the spiritual effects of sin, which is the fact that your body will in fact be dead in every sense of the word unless Jesus comes back today or some point before you die. I, I think Paul had both senses in mind when he said that this body is dead because of sin, dead because we, we, we are aging and broken. And he also talked about using our members of our body to sin, like the impulses of our body lead us into sin. And the fact that we're going to die. Hudson is going to die. I'm going to die. We are born again. There's life in our bodies and yet our bodies will die. And I think that when he says there is, the spirit is life because of righteousness, I think he has both sense as well, both in the resurrection, that'll be next week, the resurrection of our physical bodies. Do you know that the hope of the Christian is that Jesus is going to come back and the dead in Christ will rise first and our bodies will be raised gloriously and perfectly without defect and without sin forever. We're going to dwell with Jesus in a physical body. And Jesus' body was recognizable. That's next week. This week... Let's look at what the Bible says about life in our mortal bodies. Life here and now. What does the Spirit do for us and in us and through us? Well, what is life? 
When Paul says the spirit is life because of righteousness, and he puts it in contrast with the body is dead because of sin, he's speaking to people with basic biological function. We can all see that, right? He's not, at, he's not sending this letter to a graveyard. So he's saying to these people, there's life. He's implying that there's more, it's more than just biological function. Everyone, whether they're in Christ or not, on this side of the ground, has biological function. It's not what he's talking about. There's more to life than living. There's more to life than breathing. There's more to life than eating, than walking, than seeing, than hearing. You know that, right? There's much more to life. And yet so many people are chasing it, never to find it. Chasing life. They, they, they sense it in their spirit. There is more to life than what, I'm got, than what I got. And they're chasing it a million different ways. They're amusing themselves to delirium. They're drinking themselves to death. There's more to life. So let's consider what the Bible has to say about what the Holy Spirit does in us so that we would understand what Paul means when he says there is life or the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does in a person is convict us of sin. If you have no new relationship with sin, then you have no new relationship with Christ. The very first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he breathes life into your dead heart is convicts you of sin. Look at what Jesus promised of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The, the Holy Spirit, the very first thing he does is he convicts you of your sin. You know that you have sinned. You know your, your conscience convicts you. You, you. you know this. The world knows this. And yet they feel no conviction to repent. They don't believe that God is going to judge them. Their kind of sin is not the judging kind of sin or the kind of sin that warrants judgment. But the Holy Spirit comes into a person's heart, convicts that person of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit says to you, you, the sin that you are doing, the sin that you are tolerating, while you're judging everyone else, the sin that you are tolerating, that is an affront to the holy God. He says this is his righteous standard and you are a sinner and you are deserving of God's infinite and eternal wrath, judgment. He convicts us of our sin. This person who receives the Holy Spirit, who is born again, who is regenerated and convicted of sin, feels at the same time two simultaneous emotions. Deep repentance. I agree with you, Lord, that your ways are right 
and good and you are holy and you are God and I am not and I confess that. And simultaneously they feel great relief because what they have come to realize is that in coming to this moment that God has graciously long-suffered and been patient with them and not allowed them to die or Jesus to come back before their sins were atoned for. So a great sense of conviction and a great sense of relief that my sins have been forgiven. And so life in the spirit is a conscience that is not numb or dull or hard, but that is washed clean. That sound okay, Andrew, over there? That, there was a boom. All right. <laughs> Life in the spirit is a conscience that is washed clean. Not a conscience that numbs itself, that, that justifies itself, that ignores sin, that tolerates sin, but rather a conscience that has been purified by the Holy Spirit. There is great relief. This is the feeling of regeneration. I recognize that I am a sinner and I am broken over that. And I am sorry for my sin, God. And simultaneously, I am thankful beyond words that you would save a wretch like me. Amen, Cecil? At the same time that we are washed clean, we are adopted as children of God. When we are born again, we're born into the family of God. And the Bible talks about in John chapter 1 that he gave the right to become children of God to all who believed. The right to become, what does that imply? It implies that you were not and now you are. We call that, we call it when a child was not part of a family but becomes part of a family, we call that adoption. And look at what the Holy Spirit does for us in Romans eight fifteen. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, when you've come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been adopted as the son of the father or the daughter of the father, you don't come back like the prodigal son thought he was going to come back as a servant and, and, and hire yourself out. And you don't come back afraid of God's punishment. You don't quiver. You might revere and you might, you might humble yourself and fall to your knees in reverence and all, but you're not afraid that God's judging, it, it, that judgment awaits you because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you've not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is that how you know God? If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, then that is how you know God. 
You have had your conscience cleaned. And you know that God is for you. And you know that God calls you child. And that Holy Spirit constantly reminds us of who we are. Romans 8, 16, the very next verse, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God reminds us over and over and over again. Why? Because, because I can promise you that Hudson is going to sin again. And he's going to wonder, is my dad going to still love me? And is my heavenly father still going to love me? And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my arm around him and I'm going to say, son, you're still my child and you're still a child of the king. And the Holy Spirit's going to say, yes, that's right, Hudson. You belong to him. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, to be sure, he keeps convicting us of sin. He keeps convicting of sin. He doesn't stop at the, at the initial conviction. He keeps on convicting us of sin. He continues the work of sanctification by convicting us of more nuanced sin. This past weekend, we had a speaker at a homeschool seminar here at our church, a wonderful weekend for the uh, many families that homeschool. And this uh, retired pastor, uh, he, he um, reminded us, boy, I just lost it just there. What did he remind us of? <laughs> oh my goodness. He, oh, here's what he said. He said, yeah, he had a lot of lines. But he said, he said, as I mature, I realize that I am sinning less and less but I am more and more convicted of my sin. That's maturity. That, that, it, is, it is somewhat oxymoronic. I, I know that I can point to my life and say, God, you, by your grace, you have set me free from these controlling sins and the things that once beheld my attention and captivated my heart and led me down this disastrous path, those are no longer a problem for me. Thank you, Jesus, for the power that you have worked in my life. And yet I still feel convicted. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Growing us into the image of the Son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Just hold pause, okay? The word of God is living and active with unveiled face. What does that mean? It, it means that, that we get to see the glory of God, not through a curtain, not through a veil, but we see the glory of God through Jesus Christ and his spirit dwells in us. We with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Look, from one degree of glory to another. In Hebrews, it says that he learned obedience through suffering. Now, Jesus was never disobedient, but he came to understand the human condition of what it means to obey through suffering. And you and I, the Lord says, the word says that the Lord disciplines those he loved. So how is it that we are, are made from one degree of glory to another? The Holy Spirit disciplines us and discipline doesn't feel good at the time, Hebrew says, but it bears a fruit of righteousness. 
the more closely we walk with the Spirit, the more we understand the character of Christ and the more convicted we become of our own sin. Honest question here. When was the last time that you confessed an actual sin to the Father? I don't, I'm not talking about, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I'm asking you, when was the last time you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit? That is his job. And if you're not feeling that, either you don't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, or you have hardened your heart and you're no longer hearing, and either way is a very dangerous place to be. But listen, we don't stand there navel-gazing. Oh, Lord, woe is me. Wretched man that I am. We don't stay there. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We look to Jesus and we see his holiness. We look at our life and we say, ah, again? And then we look back to Jesus and we say, thank you that even that was taken away. And we recognize that we fight from victory, not for victory. Victory is already ours. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is it that overcomes the world? What is it that gets us the victory? Our, our goodness, our virtue, our consistency in the word, our being at church every Sunday, our tithes, our clean outfits, our clean living, our hard work. No, our faith has won the victory. We fight from faith, not for faith. But we still fight. Amen? Passion. Passion. Right? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your heart right now? It's my heart. Is that your heart? Can you say thanks be to God who gives the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you who gets to say that. Those who have been born again by the Spirit and dwelt by him. And if you can't say that, what are you waiting on? Repent, confess, and be born again. So spiritually, we have victory through faith in Jesus. That, that's a, that is a, a positional thing. It's an identity thing. We are victors. That's who we are. But practically, how is victory dispensed to us? Through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How is it that we live in victory? Does the Lord want us to live victorious lives? Yes. He gave us the victory. He wants us to live in victory. Will we be perfectly victorious the rest of our life from the moment of, of our conversion? No. But how is it that we live victorious 
lives. We walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. The flesh is all that corrupt nature, all of that impulse that that says, do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. Be who you want to be. Do whatever feels good and right to you. Scratch that itch. You feel an impulse, scratch that. That's the flesh. The spirit says, whoa, hold up. How many of you in the age of social media have ever been blasting somebody on, on, on a post or on a comment? Boy, man, your, 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 your keyboard is smoking, right? You're, 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 you got blisters on your fingers because, man, you have, let them have it. And then you go to hit comment or send, and the Holy Spirit says, hold up. Now you got a choice to make. You got a choice to make. When the Holy Spirit says, hold up, and you don't hold up, then what have you just done? You have walked in the flesh and gratified the desires of the flesh. Amen? Too many times have I experienced that. Life in the spirit is a life that is growing in holiness and righteousness and the fruit of the spirit is growing in you. You know, I I was thinking about something recently and um, I was thinking about sin. I was thinking about the, the, when, when you think about sin and when I tend to think about sin, what comes to my mind are the big things like fornication, adultery, drunkenness, drug abuse, pornography, stealing, violence that's not righteous. And then I, I go to Proverbs chapter six, and I want you to hear six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination. There are six things that the Lord hates. That's a strong word, is it not? Six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, haughty eyes. You know what that is? Women, that's you trying to flirt, you trying to get all the attention of the men around you so that you would draw something, so that they would, they would affirm you, so that they would look at you and, and, and be seduced by you. That's haughty eyes. Men, it's, it's arrogant eyes. It's arrogance, it's boastful, it's prideful, it's, it's walking around looking down on other people. Haughty eyes, the Lord hates haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Do you realize that the Lord hates it when you lie? Well, not white lies, those are okay. Listen, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Jesus says that the, the enemy is the father of lies. And when he speaks, he speaks lies. And so when you speak a lie, you speak the native tongue of? Yeah. A lying tongue the Lord hates. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. 
feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. Twice we see lies, right? That's interesting. And one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord hates these things. As you think about, well, I'm not, I'm not sinning. I'm not sinning because I'm not doing drugs. I'm not stealing cars. I'm not murdering anybody. The Lord hates a lying tongue and false witness and those that sow discord among the community. The closer that you get to Christ, the more you recognize his perfect character and the more you are convicted of your own sin and the more humbly and sincerely and quickly you repent of it. You see, a, a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit that is growing in Christ doesn't have to be begged or convinced that they are a sinner or that they're in sin, that that, that is actually sin because they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They know that they are in the wrong. Now, sometimes we get, we get so wrapped up and we want to be right and we want to justify ourselves. We say, well, man, but, 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 but didn't you know? You, you don't have the whole story. You don't have the full scoop on this. God does. And he says, these things I hate. It is not the Holy Spirit that is justifying the things that God hates in your life. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to you and those who are filled with the Holy Spirit believe it because they understand that the Spirit that dwells within them is the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of life and the Spirit of truth. Look at what Jesus said in John 16, 13. Again, promising what the Holy Spirit would do. He would bring conviction which is essentially bringing the truth to lie. He, he, he's showing the lies that you're believing. He brings conviction that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so we come to recognize our sin because the Holy Spirit reveals our sin and we say, yes, it is sin. And I confess and I repent and I praise God that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Christians ought to be the, the ones that repent the, the quickest and the easiest. You should just insinuate, man, might that be sin? And, 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 and the Christian says, mm, maybe it is. Lord, I confess. Why? Because we fight from victory, not for victory. We recognize that, that all of our sin is already atoned for. So when we come before the Lord and we acknowledge our sin before him, we don't face his judgment. You ever, have, you ever been around an abusive father? And the kid's like, I can't tell my dad what I just did because he's going to kill me. The gospel says, I got to tell my dad because he's already killed a son for me. He's already taken care of it. Abba, Father.
Not only does the Holy Spirit convict us of sin, the Holy Spirit teaches us what sin is. So as we read the word and and as we hear the word uh, spoken and unpacked for us, we grow in discernment to the point where as we're walking through life and we go, this feels wrong. This doesn't feel right. This opportunity, this comment, ah, this is coming from sin. Let me refrain from that. That, that's, That's spiritual maturity. It's one thing to confess sin once you've committed. It's another thing to say, Holy Spirit, Oh, thank you for your intervention. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for teaching me and showing me that what I was about to do is sin. And thank you for providing for me a way of escape so that I don't have to go into that sin. The Spirit of God will never tell you anything that contradicts the Word of God. Instead, He uses the Word of God, which he himself inspired, right? What does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say? For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit inspired all of the word. He's not gonna contradict his word. So you think you have a revelation, you think you have a word and it contradicts the Holy Spirit, you can, uh, it contradicts the, the word of God, you can immediately throw that nonsense out. Because the spirit of God is not gonna contradict the word of God that he himself inspired. And so the life in the spirit, life in the spirit is a greater knowledge of, appreciation for, and submission to the word of God. So it's conviction of sin. It's comfort knowing that we've been forgiven. It is a growing holiness and it is an increasing knowledge of appreciation for and submission to the word of God. Well, I don't read my Bible. I don't need the Bible. I'm saved. You're not growing. I can assure you of this. You're not growing in the spirit if you're not reading your word. Speak to me, Lord. I, I, I need to hear from you. I need to know. I need discernment. I need to, I've got a choice to make. Speak to me. He has. I want to hear him audibly. Read it out loud. Thank you, very kind. <laughs> the Spirit also gives us gifts to you. So, so there's this, this growing holiness and conviction and understanding and love for his word. He also gives us gifts to use for the edification of the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one, to who? To how many? To the special to the, to, the, to the anointed, to the, to the high and, and lifted up, to the exalted. No, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What, what common good? Of society, of the church, of the body, 
for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit. Why are we so, this is what Paul's dealing with. People are judging each other. Well, I've got this spirit, and you've got, or I've got this, I've got this gift, and you've got that gift. Well, my gift's better. Paul's like, it's the same spirit that gives gifts. To another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And, and, and this is not an exhaustive list. Paul actually has another list that doesn't include all of these things. And so the Lord gives, the Holy Spirit gives a variety of gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Why do I have the gift of speaking and leading? Because the Holy Spirit gave that to me. Not better than anyone else. This is just what he's called me to. You also have a gift of the Spirit. Use it for the common good. Whatever he gives us, or regardless of what gifts he gives us, he gives us all the power to be Christ's witnesses to a hurting and lost and dying world. In Acts 1 he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to, all, uh, to the end of the earth. Life in the Spirit is a life that is empowered and emboldened to make Jesus known to the nations to the glory of God. What is life, what, what is my life about and what is your life really about? It is about making Jesus known to the nations for the glory of God in whatever way you can. That is why we have a vision here called Every Member a Missionary, taking the gospel across the street and around the world. Wherever you are, that is your mission field. You are being equipped right now to be sent here, there, and everywhere. Wherever you are, you have been sent. Consider yourself hereby commissioned wherever you go. To the lunch place today, yes, there. To the grocery store tonight, yes, there. To my workplace or my school tomorrow, yes. To my gym, absolutely. What about when I'm walking down the road 100%? What about when I'm sitting at my dinner table with my kids? Yes and amen. Wherever you are, you have been sent so that the gospel goes to all the nations for the glory of God. Brother and sister, that's the only reason you live. You understand that? The Holy, Jesus did not say the, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and give you power to be successful in business. to be a great military leader, to be the best ballerina dancer. No, he says he's going to give you power to be my witnesses as a ballerina dancer, as a military commander, and as a successful business leader. Life in the spirit is life that is empowered and emboldened to make Jesus known to the nations. Jesus called the Holy Spirit our helper in John 14, 26. And Paul says that he helps us in our weakness. And in fact, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. In Romans chapter eight, verse 26, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Life in the Spirit is life that depends upon the Spirit, that goes to him with our needs and our pains and our struggles and our failures and our weaknesses. Lord, I have not been living the way you want me to live. I'm coming to you now. Help me. That's an honest, beautiful prayer. It's recognizing, like Job did, that everything about your life depends upon him. Job said in Job 34, 14, and 15, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Whether you're in Christ or not, you are utterly dependent upon the spirit of God for life itself. Now, what about this righteousness? Paul says that the spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Mine? Yours? Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one. So it's not my righteousness that gives me life, and it's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. In the greatest exchange of all time, Christ took your sin upon himself and gave you his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're not gonna find life in your own righteousness. You're not gonna find life in your own works. You can't find it in wealth. You can't find life in a bottle, whether it's a pill bottle or a whiskey bottle. You can't find life in a glass pipe or a cigarette pack. You can't find life in pornography or entertainment. You can't find life at the gym. You can't find life in a fishing boat. You can't find life at a grocery store or a shopping mall. You can't find life apart from the spirit of life. And the spirit of life gives you life because of righteousness. And it ain't yours. It's Christ. Do you know him? Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know him? Do you know him? If you know him, are you walking in the spirit or are you walking in the flesh? Brother and sister, I invite you to consider, to pray, to repent and respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace and mercy and life in the spirit. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in my life, in my son's life, in our life. You are so good to us. I pray that you would give life to people today. Holy Spirit, would you cause hearts to be born again, even now? And those who have been sinning, those who have been hardening their heart, those who have been walking in the flesh, doing things that you hate, I pray that today would be a day of repentance and turning in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online. 
live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.